In the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right side up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live his mission, turning this upside down world right side up for his kingdom, his power, and his glory. I remember a number of years ago when the fitness phenomenon known as CrossFit was first introduced to our area and the gym that I worked out at. And the way that they introduced this was they took an otherwise normal gym and they partitioned it right down the middle with this like yellow railing. And on one side of the yellow railing was what you would expect to find in a gym. They had free weights and machines and treadmills. But then on the other side of this yellow railing is where they unleashed these caged animals, these CrossFit fanatics, uh, where they were swinging from bars uh, like orangutans. There was a guy with a whistle. There's a countdown clock. They're jumping around. They're taking like medicine balls and they're slamming on the ground with like the angriest faces you ever saw in your life. And then from there, they're, they're doing push-ups, but not like push-ups like we know push-ups, like with your hands and your feet intact. Like they were doing push-ups like just on their hands, like handstand push-ups. It was like insane. And I gotta be honest, I was intimidated. And even though I had a number of friends on the other side of this yellow bar constantly like barraging me, like, hey, you need to come get like a real workout, you need to come over here. I honestly just stayed and preferred to stay uh, in my comfort zone on the other side of the yellow bar. And as I think about what it is that kind of intimidated me about it, it was this reality that what CrossFit does is it doesn't let you stay in your comfort zone. Like, like it, love it, hate it, whatever you feel about it, you, you have to recognize that in what they do in changing up the workouts every day is they will expose your discomfort zones. They will expose your physical fitness weaknesses. For example, uh, I think about the guy who, like, their workout routine for years has just been like chest, back, buys, tries. Chest, back, buys, tries. Like, repeat, repeat, repeat. And they can bench press like 350 pounds, but like from the waist down, <laughs> looks like they're riding a chicken. <laughs> and so, what CrossFit's gonna do to you, bro, is they are going to reveal underneath those sweatpants, which you've been hiding, those little chicken legs, because they're gonna put you underneath the squat bar and reveal your physical fitness 
weakness. Uh, or, or maybe you are like a bodybuilder physique, like from head to toe, like you look the part. But if you're honest, you're like completely winded when you get to, you know, just up one flight of stairs. Uh, well, CrossFit's gonna reveal your cardiovascular weakness. Uh, and then just when you think you've cracked the code on all the things that you can do or they're gonna do, the next thing they do is they start putting you like through gymnastics routines. They have you balancing stuff. They have you swinging from gymnastics rings. They have you uh, walking on your hands and just all kinds of crazy stuff. Because CrossFit, again, like it, love it, hate it, has a unique ability to expose our physical weaknesses, to pull us out of our physical comfort zones. And so that's why I stayed on the other side of the bar. I like staying personally in my own comfort zone. Well, we are in a series called The Best Sermon Ever, based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And what we're getting ready to enter into, what Jesus has for us over the next several weeks, it, it, I'll be honest, it's gonna feel like CrossFit for our souls. It's gonna expose some weaknesses. It's gonna make us uncomfortable. It's going to take us to conversations and topics that will make us blush. Because the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus' best sermon ever in pursuing this best life possible is only possible by talking about issues that really matter and really affect us, even in the most uncomfortable realities, even in our weaknesses, you could say. But be encouraged that as we step into these weaknesses, that that's exactly where Jesus needs us and where we actually want to be. Because that's what the Christian life is all about. It's not about having it all figured out. It's not about cracking the code and reaching perfection. You never will. And we're actually gonna see some situations where people try to look like they were and it was the worst thing for them. That the best thing for us is actually to identify our weaknesses because as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, for when I am weak, actually I am strong. Like I can celebrate that because that is the unique space where God needs us in order to open ourselves up, not for what we can do, but for what only he can do in us. That's what we just celebrated in communion, this reality that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's perfection, and thanks be to God that Jesus came to fill in and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so Jesus, he empowers us then to do what he thus teaches us to do. And so we pick up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this best sermon ever, in Matthew chapter five, verse 17 through 26, uh, right where we left off, where we were looking at uh, the Beatitudes a couple weeks ago, what it looks like for us to represent that to the world as salt and light, that when people get a taste of us, hopefully they get a taste of God. And now Jesus is gonna show us what that kind of life looks like. And he's actually gonna tell us at first what it doesn't look like. As he says this, starting off, he says, First of all, when it comes to my teaching, you need to know, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, if I had to guess the burning question that you woke up with today, my guess is this wasn't it. Like you weren't wondering, hmm, I wonder if like, you know, Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets. I hope they answer that one today. Uh, that wasn't what was on your mind. But for the people who would have first heard this sermon from Jesus, it's exactly what they were wondering. Because they were comparing what Jesus was teaching with what they had been hearing and learning from their religious leaders of the day. And they were very concerned, is this a new kind of teaching, they would say? And Jesus says, no, 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 this, 
is not a situation where I'm coming to abolish or do away with anything, but instead I'm doing away with the misinterpretations and the misteachings of the religious leaders of the day. I'm here, Jesus is saying essentially, to straighten those out. In fact, Jesus actually, he, you could say he doubles down on the law and the prophets, uh, going on to declare, uh, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fill them, to literally in himself and in his teachings to fill them up where you could say they had been emptied of their truest meaning. And so Jesus, he goes on, he says, for truly I tell you actually, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, he then starts to unpack what it looks like to live in this, or as I was suggesting earlier, actually what it doesn't look like. Verse 20, he says, For truly I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, meaning it shouldn't look like them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'll tell you, that statement to the original hearers, that would have been earth-shattering because for the people in that day, they looked to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, like to them, to the people, like they were the professional like do-gooders. Like if there was a professional goody two-shoes, like a Pharisee was it. They even invented ways of being gooder than good. Like I know that's not good English, but it's exactly what was happening. They were all kinds of ways trying to not only demonstrate that they were good, but also putting those burdens on the people to do the same. And so Jesus, both here and throughout the Sermon on the Mountain, lots of other places in Scripture, he says, no, 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 no. This is not your example. The Pharisees, they are not, at that time, good. They were, you could say, good at looking good. They got really good at looking good. Jesus would um, rebuke them, saying that they were like whitewashed tombs. Uh, so you think about like a, a beautiful, ornate tomb uh, that you, you see, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, but then like, what's on the inside of that, Jesus says? Still, dead bodies and bones. And so what Jesus is exposing here, like the point of this whole thing, which this is a spoiler alert for church, like this is not about us looking good. It's not about us looking good or at being good. It's about figuring out what it means to actually discover the goodness of God from the inside out. And so that's what we're gonna see Jesus do. He's gonna kind of break through the physical, external realities of what we might see on the outside. And the way he's gonna do that, he's gonna say, you've heard it said. He's gonna say this over and over. You've heard it said. And he's gonna be talking about these physical realities. And then Jesus will say, but I say to you. And in every one of those instances, he's gonna go straight for the heart. He's gonna get to the inside of the heart so that out of the overflow of what's authentically being changed from the inside, we might then have an outside or a physical reality that in turn represents what's happening on the inside. It really comes back to this idea that we talked about the very first week, that it doesn't start with behavior modification. You don't show up to God, you don't show up to church, and you get your act together so that then you can be right with God. It's the other way around. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts our heart 
And then out of that conviction, we then repent, which means literally to change our mind. And then from there, naturally, as our mind shifts from our way of thinking, the world's way of thinking, to Jesus' way of thinking, we then naturally follow that with the direction of our lives, which then results in a behavior that authentically represents what the Holy Spirit is doing in our heart. And so Jesus throughout the rest of chapter five, which we'll cover over the next several weeks, he will correct and clarify six key commands, six you heard it says, but I say to use, where he's going to take what was misinterpreted, misunderstood, mistaught, and mislived by the religious leaders of the day and straighten them out, getting to the heart of the matter. He'll, he'll talk about things like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Obviously, that's a physical reality. But he says, I say to you that if you look at someone with lustful intent, the heart, that you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. And over and over, again, Jesus will go past the physical reality into the heart reality behind those physical manifestations. He'll say, you've heard it said about tough things like marriage and divorce, commitments and integrity. You've heard it said about justice and revenge. You've heard it said about what a neighbor is and what an enemy is, about love and hate. But I say to you, Jesus says over and over as he gets to the heart of any of those behaviors. And so for today, our very first, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that comes from the best sermon ever from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, picks up here in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, physical. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so Jesus, he is upping the ante in, in ways that are kind of hard to get our head around when you think about it at first blush. Look, like he is upping the ante from just the physical sin of murder to like the heart of the matter that is behind murder, namely anger and specifically an anger that makes you want to kill someone. And so it's important for us to answer this question. Like when it comes to anger, like is the emotion of anger in and of itself a sin? Well, no. As in fact, we actually see Jesus demonstrating what we would call a, at times, righteous anger. That he gets angry at injustice. He gets angry at faithlessness. He gets angry at the devil and his demons. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul later, he will actually draw a very specific distinction between anger and sin, as he says it this way in Ephesians 4.26, that in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And so no, the emotional response of anger in and of itself is not a sin. But left unchecked, left unchecked, it can turn into an anger that becomes a deep-seated bitterness, contempt, even a hatred kind of anger. In fact, it's that 
escalation of anger that Jesus is painting here in his teaching. As he paints a picture of anger that has gone from an emotion to outright name calling and like cur- calling down curses on someone as those words like raka, like that literally means empty headed. Like synonymously, it's like what we would call someone like, like a moron or stupid or idiot or something like that. Like that is what this means. A.B. Bruce, biblical scholar, uh, says it this way. He says, it is contempt for a man's head. But to go to the next level of you fool, uh, the Greek word that, uh, for that is more, Bruce says, A.B. Bruce says, it is contempt for one's heart and character, even contempt for one's soul. As Bible scholar RVG Tasker, I'm really not sure why these guys don't like their first names <laughs> and are committed to hiding behind their initials, uh, but nevertheless, he says, the man who tells his brother that he is doomed to hell is in danger of hell himself. You see, what Jesus is revealing is how unchecked, escalated anger at the heart level only escalates into contempt for a person's presence, even their soul, even to the point of desiring, or even seeing through on the physical removal of their presence from the planet through murder. And so since anger isn't initially, uh, the emotion of it isn't initially a sin, what then do we do with this emotion of anger? What do we do to prevent, as the Apostle Paul warns, uh, to not sin in our anger. Well, any psychologist, psychiatrist, or counselor will tell you that when it comes to anger, that anger, you could say, it is a great indicator, but it is a terrible decision maker. That anger is a great indicator to tell you that something's going on Feelings are good at alerting us that there's something going on, but it's a terrible center at which to then operate out of, make decisions, or respond, or if we're honest, react out of. Anger is a great indicator, but a terrible decision maker. About this time last year, we did a sermon series on the book of Proverbs called The Art of Living Wisely, where we actually took an entire message uh, and devoted it to very practically, wisely, what do we do to respond to and process anger as it hits our lives? And so if that's something that you might find helpful to you to get into more specific detail, I'd encourage you to check it out. Firstdecatur.org slash sermons is where you can find the archives of those. But one of the things that we uh, referenced in that message was what the fifth century theologian St. Augustine said when it comes to anger and our life's deepest emotions. He says it this way, that when we see anger in our lives, that we can understand it as smoke from a fire. That anger is like smoke from a fire. That there's uh, something, you could say, burning at the source of that emotion, burning behind it. This You could say this why behind the what, that the anger, the smoke, is indicating, that we have to figure out what that is. And interestingly, James, the brother of Jesus, he talks specifically uh, in a letter to the church about how to figure this out. He says it this way, uh, by asking a question. He says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? What is uh, that it is causing angry quarrels and fights among you? And I would just turn that question 
to you, like when you think about your life, think about maybe the last two or three arguments, fights, quarrels that you've had, and, and you picture those scenarios, like what is it that caused those quarrels and fights among you? And for you, you might say it's, it's not really a what, it's probably more of a who, like my, like my boss, like you should see the list of unrealistic and relenting expectations and the way I'm treated by him or whore, or uh, maybe it's the kids that are in your life. It's like, you know what, these kids of mine, like they don't listen, they're so disrespectful, I feel like I just need to send like a letter to every single one of their teachers to put up, you know, that they put up with these heathens all day long and I won't listen to a word I say. Uh, or maybe for you, it's like your, your spouse and you just, you've had it up to here and you're just like, man, does she, does she know? Like, do these kids know how lucky they are to have a, a man like me that provides a roof over the head and the food on the table? And, uh, you know, and I just gotta be honest, guys. Like, even as you list that, like, that's a pretty low standard. You know, like, even possums do that for their families. <laughs> And so in each of these settings, what is the common denominator? When it comes to the quarrels and fights among you, what is always true in every single one of those situations? What, or who should I say, is always present? You are. I am. Like, we are the common denominator in every fight and quarrel among us. Like, you are the one that is there every single time, 100% of the time. And that's what James goes on to say. He says, what's causing these quarrels and fights? He says, don't they come from you, the common denominator? Don't they come from the evil desires that are at war within your heart? Do you know that when it comes to what goes on inside of you, or more accurately, what comes out of you, uh, this is something I came across a number of years ago that, that was very helpful uh, and, and both uh, challenging as well, that when it comes, I'll just talk about me, maybe it applies to you, maybe not, probably does. But when it comes to the idea that someone else can make me mad, uh, that someone else can make you react, did you know that no one can make you mad? That no one can make you react, no one can make you sin in your anger, to use the words of James. Now, someone can stir you up, you know, like a spouse, a family member, a kid, a coworker, a bad driver, like they can stir you up, but what comes out when you're stirred is whatever's inside of you. It'd be like if I took this water bottle and I took the lid off and I just started shaking it around. Naturally, whatever's inside is going to come out. And so getting past just, again, the physical response, we have to understand, okay, what's going on at the heart level? What is on the inside that God wants to work on by the power of his Holy Spirit to renew so that what comes out is something different than a reaction, but instead a response that God is in the middle of. Uh, the understanding that uh, accompanied this for me uh, a number of years ago was something that hit me uh, when I learned of it, like right between the eyes, or honestly, more genuinely, like right in the heart. Like it was 
absolutely Holy Spirit conviction of the heart when it came to, uh, and I'll confess, my own struggles with anger in my life and figuring that and what God's been trying to work on me for a number of years. But I remember our, our kids were really little, and it was, it was a book, it was called Scream Free Parenting. And one of the things that it revealed was this idea that when I lose my cool, again, say on a coworker or a spouse, or in this case, like a three-year-old, like when I lose my cool, what I am saying is I am not in control of myself. Like I'm saying, like, actually, I need you because I can't control myself to do something, three-year-old, in order to get me under control. How ludicrous is that? That I literally am asking a three-year-old to act a certain way in order to get me under control. Where does this come from? Again, when we lose it on anybody, James goes on. He says it comes from the desires within you, and you know what that desire is at the end of the day? Simply put, you want what you don't have. That at the end of the day, and the more I think about this, the more true I'm convinced it is in every situation, that what is warring within us at the end of the day, in every situation, is there is something that you want that you can't have. That anger is indicating that there's something that exists that you want to have that you do not have. Now, it might not be physical. It could be theoretical. It could be like control. You want control of a situation or a circumstance or someone and you don't have it. And so you're at war within yourself. Anger comes out. You might want someone to do something but you can't have it. You might want someone someone to, to stop doing something but you can't have it. And anger and quarrels and fights are coming within you and with those around you. And I'm not even saying that what you want is not necessarily unjustified. I mean, you could want a justice, an injustice, I should say, justified. You could want a wrong made right. You could make, uh, want uh, an unfair situation made fair. But at the end of the day, you don't have control over something you want that you don't have. And so what do you do? Internally, externally, you scheme, you kill to get it, James says. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. And so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them because your anger is ultimately smoke from a fire. And so you've got to discern, you've got to pray, you've got to ask God, okay, what is it that I want that I can't have that is causing this anger to billow out of me? This is a, again, a prayerful, Holy Spirit kind of change from the inside out to ask God, what is going on so that I will not act or react angrily and can begin to move into responding the way that you would have me by your power at work with me. I'm gonna just keep reminding us, this is not, you're like, I can't do that. I, of course you can't, neither can I. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within our hearts from the inside out. Can we then respond in such a way that reflects what we talked about at the beginning of this sermon, that Jesus talks about at the beginning of the sermon, that we would respond with mercy, that we would be peacemakers, that we would have a meek humility, that we would hunger for righteousness, that, that we would thirst to respond in the right way kind of ways by the power of his Holy Spirit at work 
within us. And so Jesus goes on uh, to really talk about like when these things don't go well. Like say it's too late. Say I've already kind of messed something up when it comes to how I've reacted in a relationship or within me. Jesus says that, well, if you are offering your gift at the altar and it's there that you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, well, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Goes on another illustration. Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on your way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so these two parables, what is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, earlier we referenced how the Apostle Paul distinguishes appropriately uh, but still appropriately also emphasizes the very tight connection between anger and sin. As Paul, certainly aware of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he knows that there's this warning of how quickly anger can lead to sin. As he said, in your anger, do not sin. And so Paul goes on to say how we do that. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You know, as I think about this idea, uh, so I grew up the oldest of three boys. Uh, so three brothers, those of you with brothers' household, you kind of know how this goes. And I'll tell you, we had a number of occasions where the line between anger and murder was very close. Uh, one instance I remember in particular was I was driving my brother's car. So he was in the passenger seat of his own car. And we started arguing. I think we were actually arguing about the car. And uh, that argument turned into anger, which turned into yelling, which turned into me just clocking him in the mouth while driving his car, to which he just starts to lose his mind. He's like, I can't do anything to you because you're driving my car. <laughs> and he knew if he did something back, we could, you know, murder each other, uh, whatever. And so this idea, and again, if you rent with brothers, so one of the things that they would do, like if we got in a fight in the house, um, while I was still bigger and older, that's changed since then, but I still had the upper hand for a while, is their tactic would be to obviously get away from me as quickly as possible. So they maze their way through the house with the goal of getting through the threshold of a doorway, get the door slammed and locked before I could make my way to them. However, if in that jockeying and journey, if as they slam the door, I could just get a shoe between that door frame and that door, it was over. <laughs> they knew I had a foothold. I had a foot in the door. And that's what Paul warns against letting the devil get in our lives, that don't let anger create a spot where the devil can get just a foot in the door to open that up into all kinds of anger, bitterness, unself-control, and thus sinning in our anger. And so he says, how do we do that? He says, you do that by, quote, not letting the sun go down on your anger. Now, does this literally mean that we have to resolve every single one of our interpersonal issues before sunset? Uh, or, or as maybe you've heard the saying, don't go to bed mad. Well, let's be honest about where we're at. We are in the Midwest 
on January the 22nd, I, I checked the weather, the sun will go down at 5.03 p.m. this evening. The sun will set. And I don't know about your household, but for Team Talty, our best quarrels and fights among us, they don't even get like warmed up until at least 8 p.m. at the earliest. In fact, True story, two weeks ago, we started this sermon series, The Best Sermon Ever, and I'm preaching on the Beatitudes and how we need to be merciful and the peacemakers. And I kid you not, hours later, from this moment on this stage to that evening, I had successfully gotten into a quarrel and a fight with each and every one of our four children. I was batting four for four. I mean, if, if it was baseball, it was awesome, but it wasn't baseball, it was family life. And so I'm frustrated and I head up to bed and I'm kind of looking to my wife, Jessica, to see what she might think and have to say about the kid's behavior to which she responds, uh, and I quote, she says, I think you should have gone to bed an hour ago. So this idea of don't let the sun go down while you are angry, what that actually is, it's actually an expression of the day that means simply this, keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. I mean, this is what Jesus is saying in verse 25. He, he's saying to settle matters quickly. Or, or verse 24, to even leave your gift at the altar at church and walk out right in the middle of the room and right in the middle of the service rather than allow the devil to get a foothold, to get a foot in the door jam of your life through unresolved bitterness and anger. Jesus and Paul, like they are saying, all of this is to keep short accounts. You know, Corinthians says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Anger and bitterness keeps a very long check record, a long account. We wanna keep short accounts. If you were here with us, uh, January 1, a Sunday, the very beginning of the year, we actually talked about Jesus' uh, prayer that he taught his disciples, often called the Lord's Prayer. And we challenged you uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis between now all the way up to Easter. And so if you haven't uh, worked with us then, you can, something you can pick up now. But it's a prayer that's right smack dab in the middle of the best sermon ever. And within the middle of that prayer, there is this little line that you can pray every day, which just simply says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us, who have trespassed against us, who have created emotional and physical debts, small and large. And, and one of the powerful realities that we have in praying this on a daily basis is this puts us in a position to allow the Holy Spirit to keep short accounts. When we pray daily, that our debts are forgiven, that out of the overflow of that reality and how much we've been forgiven, that we wanna forgive day in and day out just uh, the, the debts that have been incurred against us with others. I, I've experienced it's this, this like compound spiritual interest of living in and operating in this, this through line of the Christian faith, which is all about this rhythm of forgiveness. Many of you are probably familiar with the adage that uh, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, I think if maybe Jesus gave us an adage based on his prayer, he might simply say it this way, that debt forgiveness every day, we could say keeps destructive anger away. That a daily dose, this daily rhythm of forgiveness of debts of others will keep us from 
the devil's foot in our door, keep us from uh, an evolving bitterness, a debt of anger and unforgiveness in our lives. Just a little bit of forgiveness every day by the power of God's Holy Spirit will defeat destructive anger in our lives. And so if that's a daily reality, why not start that today? Why not start that today right here in the context of church when I have your attention, we have each other's attention about these things uh, by taking some time here in the context of worship to do just that, to confess our debts, to confess where anger has turned into sin. And with that, also recognizing that as we do that, again, this song that the um, worship team is gonna lead us is called Gracefully Broken. And just that title just speaks to what happens, that when we just take our brokenness that we've all got, our sins, our debts, it's through this graceful kind of balm that God puts us back together. Again, nothing we do, all by his grace. As we take our unresolved anger, our bitterness, the cracks of unforgiveness in our life, he forgives them. And then out of the overflow of that enables us by the power of the Holy Spirit to extend forgiveness to others. But also with that, I'll say, extend forgiveness to ourselves. Because also often that's something we haven't even touched. And you say, I can't forgive myself. You don't have to forgive yourself. Jesus already has, and you can rest in that. You can rest in that. And so I'd encourage you here, just as this song is saying, there's also gonna be some time at the end of the song where it's just instrumental for you to just to pray and to confess these things and to receive forgiveness. But also know the reality that you don't have to do this alone. I mean, that's what the whole church is about. It's about having some relationships with other people that help uh, encourage our ultimate relationship with God. And in fact, James, he actually says that when we, in James 5, 16, when we confess our sins, when we confess our stuff, when we confess what we're going through, one to another, it says in that quote, you will be healed. That there's something healing about saying it out loud with a trusted person. And I've experienced this a number of times. In fact, some of you probably come from traditions where um, confession is more a regular part of what we do. And I would, I would contend we should bring that back. Um, and so over the next few minutes, there's actually gonna be some trusted leaders here in the front of the room, uh, in the front of the East Auditorium as well, as well as your online host who would be honored to pray with you uh, about anything that's going on in your life, anything, because we all have it and we all need to confess it. And so whether in the quietness of your seat or up front with someone anyway, that you can take advantage of this moment to confess that we might be forgiven and receive healing We'd invite you to do that. And so with that, why don't you stand with us here? And I'll start that prayer off, but then I'll hand it off to you to work out between you and the Lord as he does what only he can do inside of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, for the power and the reality of your Holy Spirit's work within us. And because of that, God, what we don't want is we don't want to go into next week doing the exact same things we did last week. We don't want to be a place that does a whole lot of church with no change. But God, we know that that is not about us looking good or being good or being good at looking good, which we know is a temptation. We want to be made good by the power of your Holy Spirit. That's a work making us better in what you want us to become, knowing that it's the best way of life that you have for us, that we would change our direction and behavior as you lead us. And so Father as, we, Father, as we confess these things, we thank you for your forgiveness, that it is true in your word that 
though our sin be like scarlet, like red, that it says, you say, it's made whiter than snow. That as far as the east is from the west is how much our sin has been forgiven. I don't know how far that is, but that sure sounds like a long way and we're thankful for it. And so we confess that to you. But also God, maybe for uh, the person here today who needs to confess first that you are their Lord and Savior, which would bring them into a lifetime of forgiveness that lasts into eternal life. God, may they get honest with where they're at with you. Maybe they've been listening, maybe they've been checking it out, but may they know that they can have a real relationship with you both here and forevermore by confessing that you, Jesus, are the Son of the living God who came and died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of a new life, that they would start that reality today, being baptized into that and all that you have for them. So Father, we thank you for your work in our lives. May this place, rather than be the last place we go to get honest, may be the safest place, the safest place to confess what's going on. That just as you said, you can come for the healthy in the same way that the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. You came to save sinners, which includes all of us. And so may we not be like the Pharisees who get good at looking good, but may you, through forgiveness and your grace, make us good from the inside out. In Jesus' name.